You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, I'm really excited about today's show, but before we get there, I was hoping you could help me out. We as a podcast have certain costs associated with running our show, and to pay for those, we generally get sponsors. Now, I know sometimes it's annoying listening to ads in a podcast, but it really helps us out, and those sponsors often want to know a little information about our audience, about our community. So I've set up a survey at earnandinvest.com backslash survey. There are like four or five simple questions. They give us some information that our advertisers want to know. It would really help me out if you'd go fill it in. It is really simple, straightforward, and easy. Earnandinvest.com backslash survey. Now on to the show. This is Adam Carroll. This is Robin Simon. And this is Travis Shakespeare. You're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. The name of the documentary was MD, The Making of a Doctor. I must have been in medical school and I watched it on public television, and I was enthralled. It followed the story of seven or eight doctors starting from first-year medical students and traveling with them all the way through residency. I specifically remember one of the medical students, she was seeing a patient before he went into surgery, and then it was her first operation she was sitting in on, and the patient died. And as I watched the tears roll down her cheeks, I realized that this was probably the most realistic look at being a physician that I would ever get until I experienced it myself. And when I went to medical school and residency, I found that the stories I had watched on that documentary still rang true. In fact, when I graduated medical school, my mom gave me a copy of the film that I still watch even today. That film changed my life. So what was the film that changed everything for you? Was it a documentary? Robin Simon is an Emmy award-winning filmmaker, former TV news reporter, and senior producer at PBS. Her most recent film, Do No Harm, is about the hidden epidemic of physician suicide and medical errors. Robin, that documentary is really close to my heart after going through medical school and residency and practicing as a physician. Thanks so much, Doc. Yeah, I see when I travel on the film tour how it resonates with people and the dialogue that it inspires. So that's what makes me interested in filmmaking is seeing people react 
to great documentaries. The one thing about it, as a healthcare provider, I was able to see so much of myself in the characters. And I suppose for someone who knows nothing about the healthcare field, this was really their first insight into what it's like, the stresses and fears and worries of someone going through medical education. It was shocking for lay people to watch this. They learned a lot. They didn't even know the difference between a resident and a, you know, attending physician. So when they're seen by a resident who hasn't slept for, you know, 24 hours, what does that mean to them? They just assume, you know, everyone is at the same level, except for maybe med students if they're introduced that way, but they really don't have a clear idea. And after seeing the film, they did. And it was kind of frightening. <laughs> Travis Shakespeare is the SVP of Unscripted Programming at BBC Studios Los Angeles and oversees Emmy-winning shows, as well as he is the director and executive producer of Playing With Fire, the documentary. Travis, the financial independence retire early movement is near and dear to my heart. It was really exciting to see some of my experience up on the big screen. Financial independence is near and dear to my heart as well, as you know. And Adam Carroll is a professional speaker, author, and co-creator of the documentary Broke, Busted, and Disgusted that discusses the true cost of a college degree. Adam, especially during the pandemic, this is a really important topic. It's magnified the cost of college as many people now are doing classes virtually. Not only has it magnified the cost of college, Doc, there are now questions of students who are in repayment, graduates, some who are in repayment, who are wondering, should I even pay my student loans? Are they going to be forgiven? So there's, there's a lot of questions surrounding this topic right now. Yeah, it, it definitely is interesting for many of us who just got out of college and still have debt, and many of us parents who are worrying about sending our kids there. I want to open up this question to the whole panel. My introduction really talks about a documentary that changed my life. Robin, let's start with you. Can you look back and think of a documentary that really touched you, that changed the way you thought about things, especially if it was earlier in your life when you were just starting your career? Well, one of my favorite documentaries is Capturing the Freedmans. And the reason why is because, you know, as a filmmaker, you want to present your point of view almost, you know, just sort of comes through. But that was the first film to me that really played with the audience. Sometimes you thought these guys are guilty. And then other times like, wait, he, he's not guilty. And it just thrilled me to, to see that as a filmmaker, you can do that and really maybe pre present a more balanced point of view. So that that was the first documentary that had me expand my view beyond what I was before that, which was a TV news reporter, which was just, you know, get the facts out. So it, for some reason, that film has always stuck with me. And remind me, that was, I don't, I don't know much about it, but that was in a sense almost the original unscripted TV, wasn't it? Or it was a film. It was a film, Capturing the Freedmans was about this father and son that were accused of really, be, you know, child of child molestation. And it came about because the filmmaker was doing a story about a clown and the clown was one of the one of the boys. And he started telling this filmmaker how he had all this family footage 
from when they were locked down in their home while the press and everything was going on outside. And it was really like the disintegration of this family with this incredible footage. So of course, he switched gears from doing a story about clowns in New York to this family, which is also another thing I love about documentaries. You may have an idea of where this film is going, but once you get into it, you may find out that there's a much better story there and you have to be open to letting that happen. Travis, how did you get into documentary filmmaking? I mean, you do a lot of unscripted TV. Was the goal at the beginning to eventually make full feature documentaries? I have such a weird situation with documentaries because when I was a kid, I remember being a very young boy and thinking to myself, someday I'm gonna be a great actor. And if that doesn't work out, I'm gonna make documentaries. And I don't think that I even knew what documentaries were because I don't think that documentaries really existed in the public eye in any significant way at that time. I, it's funny, Robin, since you work for PBS, I think that the first documentary is attributed to a program called An American Family. Do you remember that? Yes, yes. It was a documentary on PBS that, that covered a family in the throes of divorce in the 70s, which was a very hot topic and a big deal, mm -hmm. right? Today, like divorce, you'd be like, could you ever make a documentary on divorce? No way, <laughs> right. nobody would watch it. But at that time it was really, really, it was really crazy. So something in me knew that the unscripted nonfiction world was going to be an area of study for me. I don't know where that came from, but that's how it started. Adam, when I listen to Robin and Travis, I really think the commonality is storytelling. I almost feel like you're an accidental documentarian. Did even the idea of making a movie cross your mind before shortly before you decided to do it? No, and in fact, the genesis of, of the doc that we built was my, my business model has always been to write a book and then go speak on the book. And so I had, I had acquired all of these case studies and stories of students some of them were hero stories and some of them were horror stories about student loan debt. And um, I was telling a, a young friend of mine, he's about 10 years my junior, and, but we went to this exact same university. I was telling him this idea that I had that I wanted to write a book called Broke, Busted and Disgusted. And it was going to be true tales of student loan borrowers. And I was going to share the sort of the highs and lows of folks who had gone into student loan debt. And as I'm riffing with him, he said, that would make a killer documentary. And I thought, yeah, it would. And I even said, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I just, I don't know the first thing about making documentaries. And he said, yeah, me neither. Let's do it. <laughs> and so he, now he did have the good fortune. He'd been in video production and it's not a huge leap to make. He was doing short commercial work, but he's an amazing, very gifted camera operator and, and editor and as well as motion graphics creator. And so he was kind of my right hand on that. I created the stories and he helped me tell them visually. So you're right, Doc, it was kind of accidental, but, but it was a, a very happy accident. Speaking of accidental, Robin, you started your career as a news reporter, is that right? Right, in Southeast Texas. Yeah, small town, 
the armpit of the country, Beaumont, Texas, Beaumont, Port Arthur, Orange, the Golden Triangle. And that's where you start out. You know, you got to go to a small market, make all the mistakes you can. And it was a fantastic experience because there were always like refinery fires going on. You had high crime. So there was always a lot of murder and, you know, fires and homes and drownings. I mean, so it was very active. Act more active than some big cities, you know, that I've worked in because, you know, small towns, crazy things happen. So, yeah, I started as a TV news reporter and then went to the PBS station in Miami. So I went from working on 90 second stories, which is actually a long time, to then you know, a, a magazine show, which the segments are about seven minutes long. Then at PBS, hone my skills, you know, doing long format documentaries. And it's so funny. The first time I had to do even a seven minute segment, I was sculpting and sculpting because documentary filming is a process of sculpting. You know, you, you can start with like two hours and then you sculpt it down to whatever you want. Well, because I came from news, I sculpted it so much it was down to like three minutes. And I'm like, oh no, this is, I've gone way too far. So you really have to adjust for the format that you're writing for. So I, I did, it's about layering. Documentary filmmakers have to learn, you know, stories have to be much more nuanced and layered as you get into the longer format. So some people do short docs, long docs. It's just about layering and deepening the journey. Travis, as Robin talks about the process of documentary filmmaking, she also mentioned before this idea that sometimes when you start a movie, you never know actually where you're going to end. And it begs a certain question, how much of documentary filmmaking is about the subject per se, and how much is it more a reflection of the filmmaker? Well, that's a deep question. Every artist is... I would say a reflection of his or her product in some way. I don't think that you can separate the two because you're basically, when you choose a subject to investigate, as you know, as a podcaster, you sort of become married to the thing that you're investigating. And the artist is shaped by the experience in the same way that the artist shapes the experience. It appears to me that it's much more of a give and take than maybe your traditional audience would expect, because it seems to me after watching all of your documentaries and knowing a little bit about you that a good deal of the filmmaker bleeds into the film itself. And I think that's a good thing, right? Because you come at these topics with a perspective. I'm thinking of Robin and your perspective of finding out about the medical students who committed suicide in New York and how that kind of urged you to look into this topic further. You had a very distinct perspective that you came at the topic with. Adam, let's talk about that perspective. You've spent your time teaching people through books and public speaking. Tell me how it's different getting the message across with a documentary. Is it more or less effective? I would say it was more effective and, and there's a good reason for it, Doc. My business model previously, as I mentioned, was going out and speaking on college campuses. And in the middle of making the documentary, 
I was, I, I, I attempted to be as neutral as possible in my question asking, and I was the interviewer in the, in the doc for the most part. But what I realized was that I'm gonna have a hard time going out and selling this into college campuses because the very message that I'm delivering is that there's a lot of students who have kind of ruined their financial lives by going down this path. Luckily for me, I had, I had some very forward thinking colleges and universities that still accepted the film with open arms and said, we desperately want our students to understand this and not get in over their head. And at the same time, there were some that said, you'll never set foot on this campus again as a speaker, as an educator. And I had to be willing to say, that's fine. This is a story that still needs to be told. And I knew that the message itself would find the audience. And coincidentally, it found it in the high school market. So now high schools today are using the film in mass. We have thousands of high schools that air this documentary to their students, their junior and senior year. And it creates this wonderful dialogue that would not have happened had the documentary not been created. Yeah, I actually, I had a message that I wanted to share, but I wanted to be fair. So I interviewed the president of the AMA, the president of the ACGME, which oversees residents. I interviewed the head of the AAMC, which oversees all teaching hospitals in North America. Some of them may feel that I did not give them enough airtime, that I, you know, didn't talk about their programs and how concerned they were about physician, you know, suicide and depression. I, you know, maybe I should have added a little bit more about what they were doing, but, and I, and when it was finished, I didn't know if any hospital or any medical school would ever show this film because like you, Adam, you know, this, the, the message is, this is a toxic, broken culture. And residents are dying, students are dying, physicians are dying, and no one really cares that much to do anything about it. And there's a lot of lip service. And some of these organizations that are supposed to be protecting physicians and patients are clueless. And that may be the message that you get from this film. So, but like you, Adam, it was odd that we were welcome because a lot of, not all, many medical schools said, we're the survivors. We haven't committed suicide. So what do we need to see this film for? Or we don't want to cause a riot, which is what someone at NYU said to me. We're not going to show this film. We don't want to give any of the residents any ideas. And we don't want to riot. So we definitely will not be showing this film. But there were medical schools and hospitals, medical system. I mean, Northwell in New York showed it to 15 of their centers around the, you know, the tri-state area. So they, they were brave. And ASEP, you know, there were many, many. I mean, we showed over 300 times. So it was shocking, but some didn't. AMA won't be showing it at their annual conference. I would love them to, but... <laughs> yeah, but it's really interesting because, you know, documentaries have become a place that serves an area that is, let's say, well, it's, we can have a discussion about this, but a no propaganda zone. Well, one of the hardest things about life right now is that in media is that everything is propaganda. And if you go to, I'm sure you had this Robin with AMA, if you go to these organizations, they want you to do their, they want to be in a documentary because they want you to pitch their PR pitch 
for them. And we live in a culture of media where everything is pitched to us constantly. We're, we're at, you know, peak, peak propaganda. And so documentaries at this point in history serve a very important role in terms of breaking that down where and when they can. Now, not every documentary does that. A lot of documentaries actually are propaganda in and of themselves. I'm sitting opposite the head of the ACGME who oversees residents, and he's telling me all about the wonderful programs that they're doing to protect residents. And they just increased work hours for interns from 24 to 20, from 18 to 28 hour shifts, 24 plus four. That, how do you square that? I mean, how, you know, oh, well, they need continuity of care to watch that, you know. If you're so sleep deprived, you're like past drunk, you're not benefiting from watching someone sick after a surgery. You're just not. You're going to get into a car accident when you walk out of this hospital. How could I pitch what they're saying? How could anybody believe? How could I have any credibility believing and putting something like that on air when you know, any thinking person would say that's kind of crazy. Adam, Robin's point is important. As a documentary filmmaker, you come to a topic with a certain point of view. What do you do to make sure you capture the other sides of the story? Maybe the sides of the story that you don't necessarily agree with. I'm sure, like you said, you came up with against that quite a bit. You had a very specific view about debt and how we were funding our college and university system. Obviously, people within that system didn't necessarily agree. How did you know how much space and time to give them? It's, a, it's an astute question. We, we wrestled with this big time, Doc. I mean, we had a number of folks from the college and university market that would say, we're not the bad guy. You know, the, the bad guy is X, Y, and Z. It's the fact that when students demand internet and they all want to stream Netflix on campus, imagine the, co- the bandwidth costs of doing that to a university. And then they'd say, you know, we're just competing to get enrollment. And so to compete, to get enrollment, we have to make our dorms nicer. And that means, you know, we've got granite countertops in the student apartments and they've got stainless steel appliances. And I mean, some of these, these places have, have designed environments that the students can't help but not want to go there. And, and we had some folks that we interviewed that said, it's not the school's fault, it's, it's the parents' fault. It's the society's fault because we demand a degree. And so you have all of these competing storylines and, and who's at fault and fingers pointing one way and the other that we had to kind of land on what is the center of this issue. And what we landed on was that overall government support of state universities has decreased to the extent that like, State universities in California were once 80 or 90% funded. Now they're 8% funded. So when you talk about, you know, UC San Diego or UC Santa Barbara, is it really a state university when 8% of their budget comes from the state? The rest is all tuition driven. And, and so this is, has created a massive shift because the onus is now on the students and the parents to borrow money to fund school. A, a much larger issue here is that we have made university education a huge priority societally, but not governmentally, not, 
you know, we're not helping to pay for that. That's all on the, on the individual families, essentially. So back to your question, it was really challenging for us to narrow down what was the point we were going after. And even in doing that, we had a lot of people say, you missed the ball, man. It was this, it was this, it was this. And we said, it could only be a 48 minute doc or a 52 minute doc. You know, like we were trying to get broadcast length or we were trying to get it used in schools. It could have been an hour and a half. We just didn't believe we had the time. Travis, I'm looking at your films, Playing With Fire, which introduces the financial independence, retire early community, Robin, Do No Harm, which talks about the epidemic of physician suicide, and Adam, Broke, Busted, and Disgusted, which talks about the problems with our college debt system. Travis, these are societal issues. Is the purpose of documentaries social and legislative change? I mean, is that why you as a filmmaker make these films? No, that is not the purpose of documentary filmmaking. In fact, when you go back to the, An American Family or you had asked about the documentaries that inspired us, the one that probably got me really going was Grey Gardens, which was a really amazing film out of the 70s that covered distant relatives of the Kennedy family. That was a character study. And like everything in media, things are in vogue in one period and things are not in vogue in another period. We happen to live in a very, as you know, polarized society. And the money flows into documentaries now on polarizing issues. Again, to go back to the fact that, you know, back in the old days when 60 Minutes was, for example, like the thing that everybody watched on Sunday night, that was a place for exposés to happen that would inform and educate the population. Today, that's, you know, who watches 60 Minutes? I mean, probably the people listening to this podcast, the majority of them don't even know what 60 Minutes is. But so now they look to documentaries for that educational stance. And for better or for worse, documentaries are a political, let's say, they can spearhead and accentuate issues that and bring them to public knowledge. If you look at, for example, An Inconvenient Truth, the Al Gore documentary from 2000 about global warming and climate change, that was a huge call to action that actually probably helped elect certain presidents over the, over the 2000s. Yeah, I think it depends on what the documentary is. Is it about a character like Gloria Vanderbilt? Or is it an issues-oriented film? So if it's just a character, you're just, you know, opening a world for an audience into a, a personality. But if it's an issues-oriented documentary, the objective could be threefold. One, create awareness. Two, open a dialogue within the community and among the public at large. And three, yes, advocacy to change the culture, certainly with Do No Harm, we wanted to hit all three. Open a dialogue, for sure. Create awareness, especially among you know lay people outside of the medical community. But yeah, now we're at a stage where we're actually, Senator Tim Kaine just introduced legislation, the Lorna Breen Act, about making mental health treatment available for physicians especially, you know, in light of the pandemic, of course, Lorna Breen, it was a physician who took her own life during the pandemic. 
So we are, you know, supporting that legislation and we want to make this film available for free to every lawmaker to so they have an understanding of what this is about so they can support this legislation. So, yeah, it's a it's a, an important role in society, I think, that we have to play if it's an issues oriented film. But I also think if I just could say that, in my opinion, like documentaries have gone too far into issues and I don't think it's as interesting. What One of the other documentaries that I co-produced was a, a film about Elaine Stritch, who was a very famous Broadway actress and also the star of a very famous documentary, which was the behind the scenes filming of a musical called Company, which was a Stephen Sondheim film that also was just an amazing piece of, of work. Nowadays, and I know this from you know working in TV as well, like everything's either issues driven or true crime. That's really where the money flows. It's very hard to get documentaries that are not issues-based made at this juncture. Adam, as I'm listening to this conversation, I'm trying to parse in my head how we separate the difference from documentary with, I think it's educational function, and then just bald propaganda and politics most of us have heard of or seen the quote unquote documentary Plandemic, right? It came out during the pandemic. It was panned as untruthful. There was a lot of controversy surrounding it. Are, are the things like Plandemic doing documentaries a disjust and injustice? I mean, how do we kind of separate which is informative, important, educational versus something that might just be propaganda? Yeah, great question. Uh, the so the the answer that I have to that, Doc, honestly, is that one of the things that we have to do as a society in general is be willing to question and have great discernment about what is real and what is propaganda. And and even in my film, I think there were people who were saying, "Well, it's anti-college, or it's going and getting an apprenticeship, you know, and going that route." So I think there is some level of discernment that we as a society need to, to have when we watch these documentaries. And if nothing else, I think what we all do by making these films is pique people's curiosity enough that they start their own research and digging into it. And I certainly know that with, with playing with fire, there's a lot of people that are now investigating the fire movement. I can imagine that Do No Harm has hospitals and physicians and you know, future med students digging into mental health aspects of the, the career field. I hope that my film has prompted dialogue around the kitchen table about what are we willing to go into debt for, to, for you to get this French literature degree, you know, given the French literature factories are all closed now. What, what, what are we going to do? So I want, I want discernment and I hope that the docs that we all create build some level of discernment and, and curiosity in our audiences. In the first half of the show, Robin, Adam, and Travis talk about the specifics of making a documentary. After the break, we discuss how this all relates to money. But first... This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. 
The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Here at Earn and Invest, we talk a lot about the decisions that help you earn and invest in your future so you can do the right things today. Well, if you're interested in financial independence and you're interested in real estate, there is no better place to go than listen to Coach Carson at the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast. He talks about all the tips and tricks and how to get ahead and how to reach financial independence using the real estate asset class. He has two different types of episodes, one in which he is on alone teaching you about how to make real estate work in your financial independence plan. The other is when he has real life examples of people who go on who are proof of concept that real estate can be the path to making your net worth higher to getting towards that place where you have enough cash flow to build and live a free life. Check them out, coachcarson.com, the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast with Coach Carson. It's well worth a listen. What's interesting about the three of us on this panel is that all of our documentaries are about the negative impacts of money and you know, and the role that it plays in our lives. I mean, to, to be uh, transparent, Adam was actually one of my mentors in making Playing With Fire. I went to him a number of times to ask him about his business model and the way that he got it made because me coming from an institutionalized, you know, TV, big money, blah, blah, blah. It was very difficult to like pivot into like independent work, but your documentary, Adam, and and yours too, Robin, they're, they're kind of terrifying in, in regards to the way that money has become toxic. It it's no longer supportive to these these programs, it's actually a toxic, I don't know, poison in, in the journey of, in both cases, people trying to get an education, which is very ironic. There, there's a big discussion right now among documentary filmmakers about ethics. Hmm. We have to be careful because we don't want to strain credibility for ourselves. You know, we, we have to maintain that. But you have some documentary filmmakers who take money, you know, from people, from companies that have an agenda. For example, when I started Do No Harm and I was, you know, doing due diligence, has there been a film like this before? There was on public television years ago, a documentary about physicians and mental health. But the solution after watching this hour long show was drugs that they should, that doctors should take antidepressants. And that was the conclusion. And I'm like, yeah, this was sponsored by a drug company. And I don't know how it wound up on public television or maybe it was, you know, paid programming at some point, obviously, but that's distressing because that's not the solution. Take drugs. The solution is, cultural change and everyone buying on top down that we need to change this culture to make it 
safer for physicians and patients. So it's distressing that that kind of stuff goes on and we need to be vigilant about making sure we, we don't allow that in our industry. Robin, I want to follow up on that because one of the things that to me was stunning about Plandemic is one of the things that lent it credibility is in filming it, they had used a lot of the documentary techniques. So people were primed to believe that what was being talked about was fact because of the way it was filmed was very reminiscent of some of the great documentaries out there. It's so scary. I mean, but you see on television commercials when it looks like it's a news anchor delivering news, but it's really about like car insurance. So we see that happening, but it's more troubling in documentaries because I think they're supposed to be sacred to some degree. But you see like you see Trump, you know, these films that are put out by, you know, conservative organizations to counter, you know, that some other messaging and, and that look and feel like a doc, real documentary. It's troubling. That's what I'm talking about. Ethics in documentary filmmaking. We can't allow these kind of programs to get out there, but what, what can we do? I mean, people have freedom of speech, but it, it, it hurts our industry terribly when they get out there because now it, everything is suspect and we don't want that. Travis, we talked about ethics as a potential hurdle nowadays for the documentary film industry. What else do you think is challenging in 2021? I think what's challenging is where the money comes from. It's kind of what Robin was talking about getting documentaries funded is very difficult. A lot of it has to come from private money. There are grants. It's very difficult to get those in any kind of timely fashion. And most of the topics that are made and do well are timely. So you got to move fast. And if you don't, you'll get left in the dust because today's hot topic is tomorrow's old news cycle. I think the ethics of it is really important as well. It's hard because we live in this time where everybody is for sale. Influencers on Instagram are now documentarians of a sort, right? But they're just selling themselves and they're using themselves as propaganda to support a business. Now, I'm not judging that. There's nothing necessarily wrong with it, but it creates a gray area that becomes very difficult to muddle through. And like all of the conversations that we're having around media and pub the public sphere, what is truth? What is reality? You know, these postmodern tropes that are plaguing us all are threatening to the, the world of documentary filmmaking and television, which has traditionally been somewhat free of that conversation because there was always an assumption that if it was a documentary, it was, it was true, or there was some truth in it. And now, like, you look at Adam's documentary, I mean, I think it's hilarious that anybody could go up against that and be like, oh, this is propaganda. I mean, it's clear what's happening with student loan debt. <laughs> we, live in a, we live in a world where you can attack anything and sort of gain traction. And that's troubling for, well, a lot more than just documentaries. Just to mention that other countries do a much better job supporting their documentary filmmakers so they can remain 
unbiased. And that's a big problem in this country. There are just tens of thousands of people who want to be documentary filmmakers, and they're all vying for a very limited number of grants. So yeah, you're forced to, you know, look elsewhere into the public sector and, you know, what are you willing to sell to, you know, to how are you willing to compromise to get that money? And you just have to be really careful because you could get into a situation where you give up creative control to a sponsor and you never want to do that. It won't come out good. So you might as well not do it. But but people do agree to it because they want to get this thing done. It's not worth getting it done if you have to compromise your ethics. You just find some other way. It's cheap now to shoot things. You know, you can shoot something with an iPhone and and you can edit it so easily. So find a way to do it for less money, but still do it, maintaining your ethics. Adam, let's talk about the bar to documentary filmmaking. I mean, funding is limited. Unlike Robin and Travis, you really came to this without much of a background in film or TV. Has the bar raised or lowered? Well, I think for my benefit, it's, it's been lowered. Um, <laughs> because these two professionals are probably looking at me like, seriously, you got a doc made and sold? And how did this go down? I think it's been lowered, but I, I actually, I appreciate the fact that it's been lowered. And I also think that there is this cadre of really talented documentarians that, that can become the mentor pool for young documentary filmmakers. And case in point, I had gotten an email from, she was like a Dean of a particular college at a school in the Midwest. And she said, I watched your film. It was a brilliant piece of work. I'm really concerned for the future of my students but I'm also really concerned for my son who is a documentary film student at USC. And all he wants to do is make documentaries, but he's gonna come out owing $120,000 in student loans. And so he's, he's afraid he'll never be able to, to pursue documentary filmmaking. What advice would you give? And candidly, the advice that I was gonna give was drop out of USC film school and go create a documentary. I mean, why do you need someone to teach you how to tell a story? And I'm sure there's lots of technicality and all the stuff that they teach, but I didn't know that. We learned it by hook and by crook. It was like we were watching the pieces of work on documentary now and just witnessing how did they shoot? What did they shoot? What was the style? How, what does the audio sound like? What was the music editing? And we, we kind of just dissected. I say we, it was my, my partner and I on the project, but we dissected what we liked about certain documentaries and I think it made ours more effective. So in answer to your question, Doc, the bar has definitely been lowered. But I also think if you're going to be a documentary filmmaker, treat it like you're pursuing mastery in it. Don't make a crappy piece of work, though you can, as Robin astutely stated, you can shoot all this on an iPhone. You can edit it on iMovie and, and probably release it. But if you want to create a piece of work that really goes viral and lots of people watch, Put some passion behind it, learn, study your craft, have mentors, uh, but know they are out there to help you do that as well. Travis, I'm wondering what you think about what Adam just said. I mean, is making a documentary something you learn by getting the right degrees and going to the right schooling, or is, is it more experience, knowledge, and passion? No, 
you don't need a degree at all. I, I would also um, argue not to uh, get a film degree. They're very expensive and they're not, they're not necessary. I don't know if you guys know Masterclass, the sort of online teaching <laughs> portal. Werner Herzog has a really fun Masterclass. For those of you who do not know who Herzog is, he's one of the great masters of documentary filmmaking from the 20th and the 21st centuries. He vehemently argues, like, just go make a film. He's, you know, he's like, you don't need $500,000. All you need is your iPhone, a decent microphone and a vision and just go do it and go practice. The one thing that I will say that is extremely important and Adam probably undersells himself in this regard is an understanding of the rules of storytelling. You can acquire this from watching movies. You can acquire this from reading books, from uh, going to plays. It's vital and essential. And if you don't understand storytelling generally, you won't succeed because you'll just have a mess on your hands. But the bar to entry is much lower. The tech is amazing. I mean, you don't have to even understand photography to make a beautiful documentary anymore because the products do it for you in many ways. No offense, brilliant cinematographers out there. But if you want to get started, you can pretty easily. Robin, is storytelling the main ingredient? It really is. I mean, for me, the progression going from being a TV news reporter, you know, just understanding story was a good progression from news to magazine format to, you know, long form. And through that, I learned structure. So you need to learn the language or else you're going to seem unprofessional and you won't really know how to communicate effectively with the people around you. But storytelling is the best. And some people are naturally gifted at it, but most people are not. And I've had situations where desperate, you know, wannabe filmmakers have just like dumped a hard drive and say, please help me fix this. You know, I, I went out on the road and I shot all these interviews, but I, I don't know how to put it together. Yeah, you don't know what the story is. And they they just think going out on the road and shooting all the stuff, it's somehow miraculously going to turn into a film that has a journey. And it doesn't work that way unless you know what you're doing. And it's better if you go into it, even though things change, which is a great thing about journalism and documentary filmmaking in general. But at least you, you go in having a sense of beginning, middle, and what the many layers could be, what the different points of view you want to bring out. You just have to go in with some knowledge or else just you're going to have a lot of pickup shots and they may not even make sense. So yeah, storytelling, structure, knowing the language. Well, Robin, Adam, and Travis, I wanted to thank you guys for coming on. As I said in the introduction, this documentary about becoming a doctor shaped my life. And as we enter 2021 with all the streaming services available, et cetera, when I'm on Netflix or Hulu, when the whole family is getting together, we end up in the documentary section. And it is the place where certainly Americans, if not the world, are going to entertain, but also to educate and motivate. This is where social movements start. It's also where we learn about lives that don't look like ours. 
I can't think of better of a better way to spend your time than to watching a good documentary. So thank you guys for coming on today. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what you are working on currently. And if people want to know more, where can they find you on the internet? Let's start with you, Robin. What are you working on currently? Well, interesting you should ask because during quarantine, I wrote a screenplay completely fiction and it's being optioned by big production company with me attached to direct so that'll be very interesting and do no harm is still continuing do, you know doing virtual screenings and panel discussions all around the country so it's do no harm film.com you can there's a link there to Amazon or watch it on Vimeo with panel discussions that are on the website. So the film tour continues and just exploring other things, but do no harm. And documentary filmmaking is really my heart. And Adam, what are you working on currently and where can people find you if they want to learn more? Well, I had the good fortune, Doc, of doing a, a TEDx talk at the London Business School in 2015, and it ended up going viral, has uh, just shy of 6 million views on YouTube and TED.com. And I'm writing a book based on that talk. So the book is, is titled exactly as the TED Talk is, which is When Money Isn't Real, The $10,000 Experiment. And the subtitle of the book is How to Raise Kids That Are Financially Savvy in a World Where Money is Abstract. And so I believe that the, the continuation of my work from the documentary is really teaching parents how to raise their kids well, that they understand money and they, they make really savvy financial decisions between 18 and 25 or 18 and 30. So they can achieve fire and then they can go watch Travis's documentary and be super inspired by it and live that world. People can find me at adamcarroll.info. So if you want info on Adam Carroll, adamcarroll.info has all my stuff. And Travis Shakespeare, where can we find you and tell us what you're working on currently? Wow, I'm really excited about you guys' projects. My next project is actually inspired by another documentary that was very impactful for my life and also on documentaries in general. It was a documentary called Paris is Burning. It was about the ball culture in New York City the precursor to what you see now on Pose with the drag queens and so on. So there was a very famous uh, character that appeared in that documentary that I have now optioned a musical about her life, a uh, fictional uh, account of her life. So I'm working now to either do this as a limited series and or a Broadway musical. I had started down the path of moving it to Broadway at the beginning of the pandemic and now Broadway is completely destroyed until further notice. So we're looking at uh, doing a limited series. And uh, in terms of where people can find me now, I'm at travisshakespeare.com and playing with fire continues to have a really nice run. If you're interested in watching that, you can go to Amazon or iTunes or Google play or any of the other SVODs and take a look at that and retire early. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. And to have myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Robin Simon, Adam Carroll, and Travis Shakespeare. That's a wrap. 
It is time again for the community segment of the Earn and Invest podcast. Just a reminder, if you are enjoying the conversations that we're having every Monday and Thursday on the Earn and Invest podcast, you can also check us out on the Facebook page. This is a place where we come together as a group to talk about personal finance, finance in general, the economy, you name it. Check us out at earnandinvest.com backslash Facebook. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. There you can become part of our community. And this is usually where I get the topics for our community segment. Today, something kind of controversial. I found this in Reuters. It is a headline that says, Biden to propose almost doubling capital gains tax rate for wealthy individuals. Originally, this came from Bloomberg. U.S. President Joe Biden will propose nearly doubling the capital gains tax rate for wealthy individuals to 39.6%, which, coupled with an existing surtax on investment income, means that the federal tax rates for investors could be as high as 43.4%. A Bloomberg report said on Twitter on Thursday without citing a source. So let's talk about this. We know that we don't have enough money to run our government at the moment. The question is, how do we get that money? Some people say we should tax people more, and who better to tax than the wealthy? Others say we should cut our budget. Even others say, let's just wait for the economy to improve. And as the economy improves, we will have more money in taxes and elsewhere to pay for what we need for infrastructure. There was a lot of back and forth on the Facebook group page about this article. Let's go to some responses. Dave said, doubling the capital gains tax rate is taxing money twice and then doubling down. Congress won't pass any such legislation after seeing how the market responded to the suggestion today. Someone else said, all this talk of taxing the rich, etc. is nonsense until they, one, eliminate the distinction between tax rates on earned and unearned income, and hopefully that could come with a new rate that would be a bit lower than the current rate on earned income, and two, take the income cap off the SSI tax rate. Allen said, it's silly. Corporate earnings that drive stock market performance are taxed once at the corporate level, then again at the individual level as dividends or capital gains. Additionally, the original basis was taxed once already. Dividends and capital gains should have a tax rate of zero, so we're not taxing the same dollar in the same transaction more than once. Glenn said, I think they want to tax it yet again when you die in the new plan. And Gwen said, I say fair. The truth of the matter is, I don't know what the right answer is here. Certainly, I think it makes sense for a graduated tax to continue even at the higher levels of wealth. On the other hand, look, I don't want the personal hit either. I don't want to see my tax levels or my tax rates increase. I don't want to pay more money. Over all those years of being an entrepreneur, I paid millions of dollars in taxes I certainly don't want to have to pay more. On the other hand, I do believe our country is struggling, and I do think we have infrastructure problems. Now, many people think that the government is wasteful and that it will take our money and not use it appropriately, but the truth of the matter is there are definitely things the government does with our money that are very beneficial. Social Security is one. Medicare is another. To say offhandedly that the government will waste all our extra taxes, 
I don't think is right. On the other hand, I agree. I certainly don't want to pay more every year. These are the kind of conversations we have on the Earn and Invest Facebook group. You should definitely check it out. I don't know if there's a right answer. I will tell you that probably any legislation that increases taxes too much is going to have a hard time getting through Congress, even with this democratically-led Congress. But at some point, I suspect taxes are going to raise We are at historically low tax rates compared to the 1970s and 1980s. We've enjoyed that for decades, and it's probably coming to an end. All the more important for us to both earn and invest wisely, for us to be aware of the tax consequences of what we do, and maybe even to have a really good accountant. That, I think, is the best advice. Awesome. That was a lot of fun. I really that enjoyed great. that. That was great. That was awesome. Robin, what's the uh, genre and topic of your screenplay? Oh, my God. It's a horror thriller film called The Seventh Chakra. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I don't know how it was like, uh, it takes place at a yoga retreat and social media moguls. Like the, the world's wow. social media moguls. So, yeah. <laughs> Someone said to me, "You got to write a horror film. That's easy to sell." I'm like, all right, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in India, you know, at a yoga retreat. I've got this great footage. She said, "Yeah, edit a ripomatic reel, which I didn't even know what it was." I said, "Yeah, I got all this great stuff," and it just sort of. She loved the reel that I edited, and she goes, "Okay, well, send me the synopsis." And I didn't have a synopsis. I didn't even have a story. And so each step, she's like, "Okay, this is a great synopsis. Send me the script." And I'm like, "I don't have a script." <laughs> You're like, "Okay, I'll get you one of those." <laughs> it's like in reverse, you know. Usually, like you write a screenplay, then you write the synopsis and you maybe put together a little demo reel well i had i did it like in reverse so that's cool i'm also doing a a scripted limited series i won that script pipeline contest uh for a series called doc hawk based on one of the characters of do no harm (laughs) like a fictional version of medical school interesting yeah i I didn't mention it so your documentary, Do No Harm, also was very impactful, just in the sense that I could emotionally connect so much to the characters. Um, it's a real weird thing, becoming a doctor. So these documentaries that actually get into the nitty and gritty of it um, really mean a lot, I think, to a lot of the docs out there practicing. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I could have done like two hours. There's so much more, you know, the PHPs and like just, yeah. it's very complex. But yeah, at least it's a window into their world that people don't understand. And yeah, it makes them feel validated. And we did crowdfunding for it uh, and all the doctors came out. We were able to raise like, you know, $300,000. Uh, for the film because doctors said, yeah, please tell our story. Yeah. No one's All three really of you use it. crowdfunding, right? I mean, yeah. is, is, is everyone doing that nowadays? Is it like I'm making a documentary, let's crowdfund? Yeah. Or I hate kind to. Of. I try you not to. to. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Robin's like, I hate to, I try not to. Travis like, you got to do it. <laughs> it works though. I mean, look at how much you got. Like that's, that's amazing. We raised over a hundred thousand for ours as well. And I know Adam, you, like... you started with crowdfunding. Yeah. And ours, I was low man on the totem pole on this, in this panel. I was, I think we raised $67,000 in 45 days. So pretty good. 450 yeah. backers. And 
Yeah, um, given, given the fact that no one knew you in that genre, right? So this is, I'm not the guy who makes films, right? So. <laughs> yeah, I always amazing. I always look at it, maybe an interesting topic for another uh, podcast at some point, but I always maintain that we all build social capital within our, our networks. And for me, it was always just giving back to a lot of people. And, and I, um, I have this theory, I teach college students about the power 100 list. These are the 100 people in your life that like, love and respect you. And they will do, they, you know, they're the folks that would likely help you move or they, mm-hmm. if you needed something, they'd give you an intro or if you needed money, they'd give you money. So those hundred people for me were the, the core of my ask and it spread out from there and, and created what it created. But it was really that those power 100 that helped me get where I went. An interesting next. topic is about, you know, how once the film is made, how you make money on the yeah. film you know what what the different options are uh, yeah we forgot to talk about how rich you get yeah from making documentaries. <laughs> you know i had thought i had part of my actually question list to talk about because i know from dealing with you guys that so the layman thinks oh i make this movie and all of a sudden it's like there and some kind of magic happens and everyone's watching it i've learned through playing with fire etc that there's this whole process of trying to get on platforms and trying to get it into specific places etc it's 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 a, a story that 99.9% of the population knows nothing about is the yeah. struggle of made product to actually getting it to the customer. Um, but I just, I felt like we were having a good rich discussion. I didn't want to go in that direction. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it a would whole, have been overwhelming. Yeah. It's a whole nother, you know, discussion. The money story, the money story behind filmmaking and especially yeah. in your guys' cases behind documentary filmmaking could be an interesting extra panel. Um, and maybe even more on brand for the podcast, but I like, that's the problem with me is this discussion. I like a lot more. Than me too. One. I love this. I love, I love this the, talk. yeah, I love the kind of deeper whys to some of the stuff. And that's, I don't think people, I don't think general people care about financing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. so yeah, probably boring. not. Yeah. Probably not. Yeah. Well, thank you yeah. guys again. This was, I, I love these panels. Like this is, this is the reason why I do a podcast is, is to talk about stuff like this. Cause to me, it's just fascinating. You're a great host. You're you are. great to talk to. You really are. I, I like asking questions just like you guys. I, I, I want to be a storyteller. And so there are different ways to tell stories. For mm-hmm. me, the art of asking questions that make a good conversation is my own sense of storytelling. Um, and that's why I enjoy doing that. I also love the traditional storytelling of writing and, and those kind of things. But to me, this is a fun way to try to exercise that passion of, of finding out what's most interesting about people and getting them to talk about it. Yeah. The art of the interview. Yeah. It's oh, yeah. Key. It's key. a thing. Yeah. The, the, the more I understand myself, the more I understand that that's actually what really interests me. Right. Mm. So you search and struggle through life as who you are and what you're about. And it's, you know, in my late forties, mid to late forties that I started realizing that actually the art of the interview to me is, is fascinating and, and exciting and et cetera. Who are your heroes? I mean, I, I say mainly Terry Gross. I think oh, she just over, <laughs> over the decades has just had some of the most stunning, stunning interviews. And, you know, you know, it was funny for me because I started podcasting and I really wanted to be perfect. And then I went back and started listening to a lot of Terry Gross and she stutters sometimes or she says the wrong word. And I started realizing that actually that adds to the yeah. sense of the, the depth of the interview. Cause I was, I was editing myself out when I was getting a word wrong or doing all that. Mm-hmm. And I've actually stopped doing all that because I realized that what makes those episodes so deep is 
you sense her utter interest and excitement exactly. in exactly. every interview. Like mm-hmm. you're like, okay, she's digging this because she's asking just like the most insightful questions and, and seems to be hanging on every word. She's curious. Yeah. She's yes. so curious. And that's yeah. what makes a great interview. And that builds trust because if you think someone is interested and curious about you, you do trust them more. Yeah. And that's a lot of this process is is just getting people warmed up enough to trust you to actually talk about what's in, important to them. So exactly. Yeah. So Terry Gross is a big one. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch wherever you get your podcast.